Sarah, I honestly cannot believe it's been four years and we have not had a full episode on Groveling yet. Welcome, everyone, to Faded Me. Yeah, we just got to get to this because we're going to get to it. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And this week, uh, Instagram picked our topic. Again, listen, this is my new thing. Let Instagram pick the topics. because Let them great. tell us what to do. I love it. it I'm tired great. of making decisions. I like to decisions. not have to be creative. <laughs> Listen, what's awesome about this is that, uh, as you know, a few, this has happened a couple times where like someone on Instagram has messaged us and been like, hey, you should really do an episode about vampires. And then we're like, we should do an episode about vampires. Um, But we were recording the other day and I just like took a pic for Instagram and then I was like, oh no, let's do, let's ask them. And so, so many of you like answered yeah, on Instagram so what you wanted episodes on. And some of the topics were great. We went through, Jen doesn't know how to use Instagram. I'm sorry, I don't. Um, like at all. But don't worry, if you send us a message, I, I usually see it and screenshot it and send it to Jen. Yes. But there were so many good ideas. And we went through, and I really, I really did. At one point I was like, we should have done, we should have gone through these for like a whole episode. like Yes, just like reading and then being like, yes, no. <laughs> there was like one where I was like, um, Jen, somebody wants a cliffhanger episode. And I was like, moving on. <laughs> we're not doing that. <laughs> no, listen, nobody wants to hear what I have to really say about cliffhangers. So we're just going to move along. Move we're along. Not, no, no you, you all know better than to ask for that. <laughs> um, the... But what's interesting is that, uh, so we did this, we we went through all of them and there were so many good ones. We have a giant list and now we're excited because, you know, yeah, we have right. lots of places to go. Also, many, many people asked us for episodes that we'd already done. And this week, for fun, I did a bunch of Instagram stories where I named those topics and I linked to the episodes. So, and that is all saved as a highlight. Jen is like glazed over at this point. Like, what are you even talking about? That's all saved as a highlight on our Instagram feed, which is Instagram.com slash FatedMatesPod. And I think you could probably go look at highlights and stuff even if you're not on Instagram. But also, I really like Instagram, so maybe you want to be on it. I don't know. Anyway, by far the most requested episode is this one. Sarah, I am excited about it because I love groveling. And I actually, at one point, wrote an entire Me too. treatise on the 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 component parts of a good grovel and why it works. So we're going to use that as the bones of this episode because I want to talk about it. Uh, also, I should say, I I mean, I'm on the record for loving a grovel. I'm on the record for writing a grovel, like as much as humanly possible. Like if you could just make a whole book a grovel, that's like basically the plot of two of my books. So I love a grovel. Interestingly, the second we were like, let's do grovels, I had forgot. I've never read a book that had that. Obviously, no. I'm, I, I don't even know. I had to look up the definition of grovel to do this episode. <laughs> sure, of course. Here's one thing I do want to clarify before we go on to talk about groveling, which is sometimes when I say, oh, I love a good grovel, someone will reply, I hate it. But then it's clear what they hate is the grand gesture. And I would say that those are two very different things. Vastly different. So a lot of people don't like a grand gesture because they think it's embarrassing. Yeah, right. Like guy gets up on stage or, you know, proposes the ball game at the end or whatever. 
I hate that in real life, but in books, I freaking love it. Yeah, I love it too. But I don't think it is a grovel necessarily. It's just its own thing, right? Yeah. I you mean, can, a lot of times it's a com- it's a part of a grovel. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And on its own, it doesn't do the work of a grovel. That's right. So, Jennifer, tell our listeners what we mean when we say grovel. I actually, it's funny that you said you looked it up because I guess when I wrote this article, I also looked it up. The actual definition of from Merriam-Webster, the world's greatest dictionary, is grovel means to creep with the face on the ground. That's too much. I don't want that much. Right? I... One Depends. Little, I guess I'm like actually like wait, no, I'm like I totally Hang on a sec. one of my recommendations is extremely close to this. Yeah, so. no, me too. Um, I think the thing here's what I would say is I don't I like a grovel that is like self inflicted. Essentially, it's not punishment. It's it's atonement is what I would yep. say. Right, and so and I think the other thing that's really I think important about a good grovel is it is driven by change. Right, mm. so essentially, the the whatever behavior caused the need to grovel was the old me, right? Yeah. But in order to be with this person, I have to be the new me, and that means I have right. to like get past old me, and that's what the grovel is. And it's like usually come follows like a revelation that comes yes. after being left. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. Like, like there's some this stages. Requires a good grovel requires a third act breakup. Oh, a cries are a big fuck up, basically. Yeah, like somebody has made a big mistake. I, at least for every single one of mine, is, I feel like groveling is a very gendered activity. Of course it is. In which I would like this man to suffer. The ones I love best are the ones where it's a male-female romance. It's the man who's in the position of having had the fuck up and realizing he needs to change. Because it's patriarchy. Yeah, of course. It's men apologizing for how shitty men have been for their entire existence. Yes. For, since we were chimpanzees. <laughs> yes. Is that where we came from, chimpanzees? Yes, right? I think. I don't know. Don't add us. We have a, we have a common <laughs> ancestor, but we didn't come from them. It's fine. <laughs> Here's the other thing. There are some books where the woman grovels, and I don't like it. Listen, I wrote one of those, and I really tried. I really tried to figure out how to do it right. It's called 10 Ways to Be Adored When Landing a Lord. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to write a book where she has to grovel? Yeah. And it is my least popular book, everyone. So remember at the beginning, I said it can't be, like, humiliating. Sometimes when a woman is groveling, it feels humiliating. Like, it goes on for too long. I don't need it to be Mm -hmm. forever and ever, necessarily. I myself am not a big fan of... Yeah. No, I'm with you. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult and, well, spoiler, 10 Ways is going to be re-released next year, so we'll do a whole episode on it and we'll talk about it then. But okay, perfect. I do think that it is a very difficult needle to thread with the heroine having to grovel to the hero because it's about power. Yeah. It's about a power. Yes. It's about seeing a powerful person come down off their from their powerful pedestal and, like, have to rejoin humanity. Yes. And that is a thing that, like, generally, especially in historicals, which I want to talk about how, like, historicals tend to do this better than yeah. others. Paranormals, too, but historicals especially. It's because you sort of stripped everything down to, like, the real bones of yeah. patriarchy. Yeah. I think, the like, a good grovel has, like, multiple stages. 
And I think like one of the things is like, it's a, it's a private affair, right? Like whatever the fuck up is, is often like I've privately realized I fucked up Mm -hmm. and it's often like, I just want to kind of like low key, try and get it back to where it was. And that doesn't really quite work because you aren't showing that I have really changed, right? So good groveling, I think, tends to often sometimes have the intervention of another person. Someone comes along and tells this man, like, what are you doing? You're going to throw this away? You're out of your your mind. Oh, I love that, especially when it's a buddy. Yeah. So I think that there's, like, another way, too, in which what I like about the grovel is, like, it's like a a community thing. Mm -hmm. Someone coming in and saying... Is it worth being alone? Yeah, like heroine's journey style. Yeah. Sarah, what there I'm a scene rereader. I people know this about me. I don't often reread entire books. Sometimes I just reread the part where they fuck up and then leave them there before the gravel so they're suffering. Cold storage. Cold storage. Listen, so I did this event with Christina and Lauren uh, a few weeks ago. And um, somebody in the audience asked about the third act breakup. Yeah. Like, pointedly asked about it. Because there is no traditional, like, two characters having a breakup, third act breakup, in Something Wilder. Which is their current book. What's interesting, and they brought up you and how, like, they really, like, noodled this, like, how do you write a third act breakup without the writing a third act breakup? And we've talked about the third act breakup before, and I don't want to get too deep into it. But I think it's it's important to talk about it here because... I said to this room full of people, you know, 225 people or whatever, like, look, I'm a third act breakup evangelist. And it's not just because I like to see men suffer. (laughs) But the truth is, you guys, I really like to see men suffer. Yeah. Like, I I like the third act breakup because I think it is about character and what I've said before about, like, you could choose the past or, you know, choose the future. but. The third act breakup is not a grovel. Why I like the grovel is because I like suffering on page. Yes. Because I like romance. Here's the thing. I grew up reading romance and became a romance writer on the backs of, like, all those romances I read for Mm -hmm. 20 years prior. Loving romance because it would rip my heart out. Yes. Yes. And throw it on the ground and stomp all over it with the promise. Yes. That eventually it would be reseated and stitched up and I would be okay. Yes. And the experience, the visceral experience of reading a romance novel that just crushes you. Right. In that last 15%. So good. Is for me like, Possibly the greatest emotion I can feel. Yes. Like the greatest experience. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Like, no, me Jane neither. can see my face. Like she knows I'm not. I'm like, like, I just want it. Yeah. It is when when people are like, oh, like you read all you want to do is read books. Like I am chasing, it is like a drug. Yes. I am chasing that feeling. That feeling. And it is a feeling that I experienced so much. During that period of like 1988 to <laughs> 1998, yes, that like often, like when we said we're going to do a grovel episode, like I went back to, yeah, I mean, every almost every book on my list is a deep cut, 
because I just, there, that. That's where the money is, right? Panic, that sort of like the tightness in your chest, the like, mm-hmm. the like physical, visceral reaction to the romance in that moment. And like all of you out there, like if you have not experienced this while reading, like you are missing out. Like you have not read, try one of the books we are recommending this week, this week, even if you think you hate a grovel, because the truth is, is like that panicky, like anxious, emotional, like, oh my God, this God, is it's amazing. Awful. It is. It's just perfection for me. Put, like, like literally put it in my veins. Yeah. I just, it really does feel like a drug. Yeah. And it must be like, it's what it's, I mean, it's creating a physical response in our body. Like it's fucking yes. with our endorphins in some way. Right. A lot of my favorites. Look, it's oh. not a drug. <laughs> right. A lot of books I have on my list are, are like Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Well, we have to talk about Kiss an Angel. Yes. And like, we have to talk about that separate from all the other wrecks because I feel like. Okay. It's like Primordial Grovel. Primordial Grovel. It's not Primordial Grovel, but it's like such a good grovel. So I was on Learning the Tropes to talk about this book. I know. We at some point. And I'll look, link to it in show notes if you want like the full treatment. Because they did like a deep dive, you guys, on Learning the Tropes. So we're not going to deep dive. Kiss an Angel. Listen, I also had not read that book for a long time. I reread time. it last week, so. And the first time I reread it, probably a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, yeah. Wait, before you start, can I tell you that I texted Susan about... I don't know, like 25 minutes after I finished last week. And I was like, Susan Elizabeth Phillips, you fucking glorious mermaid. I just finished Kiss and Angel. And like that grovel is, I mean, like a gold star. And she wrote back, I know. Good for her. Good for her. Listen, I love everything about that reply. Like it was really good. It's, it is really good. All right. So tell us, you want to tell us the, I mean, listen, this book is larger than life to me. Yeah. You know that scene in A Princess Bride where um, Mandy Patinkin goes, no, it's too much. Let me sum up. Yes. That's exactly. Like, it's too much. Like, listen, here, so here's what I'm going to say. Are here. It's a contemporary romance set against a traveling circus, yes. which our hero, who is a contemporary romance hero... <laughs> who is descended of the Romanovs and also a college art history professor is secretly like running this circus or not secretly. He just does it for fun on, during the summers. One side of his family is the Romanovs and the other side of the family are like carnies. Yeah. But like, he also has like a house in Connecticut and like, well, that's I mean, the Romanov side. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> the point is like, who runs a circus like for fun on the off months? Listen, this guy, this guy. And, uh, and then there's the heroine, who, like, is also Russian, and it doesn't really matter. Her husband marries her off to him in chapter one. Her father I'm sorry, her father. Her father marries her off to this Romanov hero um, in the first chapter. It's unclear really why. It's sort of very romance reasons. I mean, You figure it out by the end, yeah. Well, because you're not, you don't actually know he's the son of the Romanovs. We're sort of spoiling that part, but whatever, it's important. And, um... She's telepathic and can speak to tigers, and he can, like, light cigarettes on fire and not, like, to smoke them, but just, like, incinerate them with his mind or some kind of magic. And listen, (laughs) if the hero (laughs) doesn't, isn't descended of the Romanovs for a telepathic tiger whisperer, 
I don't even want it. I don't it. want it. <laughs> so the deal is, is it's like a marriage of convenience, right? She thinks it's only going to be a couple of months or whatever for the summer. And he is going to essentially like his instructions from her father are like, she's this flighty, her name's Daisy. She's a flighty dumbass, right? She's just this pretty dumb girl and you should like toughen her up. And he is terrible to her. He oh. is terrible to her. Really bad. This one begins the sort of piece of the, the grovel puzzle, which I think is comes up again and again. He does not want to have children. This is a big, a big part of this circle, the grovel circle is I did not want to have children and I'm a jerk about it. I will say, I feel like going in from this point forward, we're just spoiling. Like these are mad spoilers. I mean, There's no way talk to talk about, about the grovel without, without saying what he did, right? So they eventually become lovers and she like worms to him and you know, whatever he's, but he's like really tough on her. Like, you know, you need to work harder and you need to do these jobs well, in the circus. And nobody tortures a heroine like Susan Elizabeth Phillips tortures a heroine. Oh yeah. No, for sure. And she discovers she's pregnant. We find out later it's because her father gave her like phony birth control pills because he wanted a, <laughs> another, he wanted to extend the Romanov family. Obviously, yeah, he wanted his sworn DNA dude is a Russian. Yeah, exactly. It's fine, fine obviously. This Romanov runs a circus. It's not like a, doesn't it's not matter. like the Romanovs are going back to power, but okay. And at this point, she has befriended and really taken care of a lot of the animals in the circus, has pointed out how terribly they've been treated. We really see her come into her own. And when she tells him that she is pregnant, he loses his fucking mind. Yeah, he's really mean. Yeah. So she really does mean. what any self-respecting Susan Elizabeth Phillips heroine would do, and she says, fine, I'm leaving. Bye. Gets in a hitchhikes away. And disappears. For two months. And I love it. I by the way, I love it, right? Oh this is God. why I'm like, when they come back the next day, I'm like, no, you need to be on for months. No <laughs> one, no one can find her. And he you don't come back. He comes to you. Yeah. Oh like, yeah. This is my other thing. It's like, what? He comes to no. He comes to you. He has been searching <laughs> the entire country for her. Cannot figure yeah, out where she is. I want is. them all around the globe looking. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, have, have you written. literally have written that. It's amazing. <laughs> and, I, like, this is, again, like, you've all heard me say I love a heroine backed into a corner. And I also love it when a heroine just, like, gets gone and is like, all right, fine. You said leave. Bye. Yep. And that is all right here in Kiss an Angel. And he finally figures out where she is and goes to her. And it's honestly so great because his suffering is so, like, he's a wreck. No, but then it gets even better. Yes. Because he brings her back to the circus. Yeah. And uh, her telepathic tiger, her tiger, the, the, the circus has, like, a grumpy old tiger. And it's really unhappy because it lives in a cage and travels yeah. around, like, in hot. And no one likes it because it's grumpy and everybody's afraid of it. And... She can talk to it. Listen, I love all these romance heroines who can talk to birds, talk to, talk to animals. Sure. Stop it. It's great. Look, at if that tiger could get out of her cage, she'd probably, like, sew her dresses together Cinderella style. Fine. I know, right? Totally. So the, um, the tiger gets sold. Because this is a thing that happens. Like, these traveling yeah. circuses have, like, these little zoos attached to them. And it's devastating and sad and awful. And they get sold to, like, terrible people for terrible things. And so the tiger gets sold, and she's, like, hysterical. Like, yeah. what happened to his ti- this tiger? And now listen, you guys. He's descendant of the Romanovs. Romanovs do not kneel. 
They do not kneel before anyone. This is the whole thing. They'd rather lose their country than kneel before people, right? (laughs) Guess what he has to do to get the tiger back? (laughs) It's so great because she does not forgiven him this whole time. And it's great. And And in the moment, here's the other thing. This is the test. In the moment, you're watching it. You're going, this is so ridiculous. Like, why doesn't this jerk get down and kneel for this tiger? Like, it's just, like, what? It's just Save a tiger's life by fucking kneeling. Good Lord. Pretend you're a church. But, like, Susan Elizabeth Phillips has proven to you, has, like, somehow convinced you that when this man kneels, like, it is like the entire universe. <laughs> like, has there's a hole ripped into time or something. Like, it is wild. And I'm not going to spoil how it all comes together. But it's pretty great because it's a Susan Elizabeth Phillips book. But you can also go list. So highly recommend you read this. Because also, highly here's recommend. the thing. You guys, it's so bananas. Oh, yeah. It's a contemporary romance. The way chem- contemporary romance is like. Yeah. You know, if you haven't read a contemporary romance that, like this, you haven't seen, you know, Beethoven the way it's meant to be played. Like, it's just like. Yes. It's such a great, insane <laughs> Yeah, it's it's honestly it's so great. I love it. I yeah. I I think a lot about that. Like I think a lot about how like I mean, as you all know, like there's something happening in temporary right now where like the characters are all very realistic. Yeah. Nobody's and, like descendant of the Romanovs. Nobody's running a circus in their spare time. <laughs> and like on sabbatical running a circus. I mean, listen, if you are on sabbatical right now, please give us your plans. I want to know what you're up to. <laughs> are you running a circus? Because that's pretty great. Are you running a circus? Why and? This is the thing is, it sort of feels like I asked my editor, who is also Susan Elizabeth Phillips's editor. I mean, I know this whole is all about Gravel, so we're going to get back around to it. But I was like, explain to me why this book would, like, why well, aren't there books like this? And she was like, well, we don't see books like this. Like, people don't send them to us anymore. So if you have this a bonkers idea, like <laughs> don't worry so much about it. Like send it out to all no. send it out to agents and editors and like we're all out here kind of looking for something. Like yeah. listen, telepathic tiger whisperer. But I think like the key thing about this like part of the grovel, right? Like him kneeling is it's not truly humiliating, right? Like there's not, like nobody nobody's gonna care. He cares though, right? Like he is mm. showing it to him it matters and to him and she right, done. exactly. Exactly. And that's why it's not like a grand gesture in the sense that he's like getting up on the stage of Wrigley Field and saying, Oh, I love you know, there's not a stage of Wrigley Field unless Pearl Jam's playing. Sorry. You know what I mean? But I think that the that's the point. Like the grand gesture here is not it's not. It's it's a gesture that's very small, but it's big in meaning. And she, yeah, like you said, she understands that. He does too. Yeah. And so that's it. Like he has to say, that was the old me. The new me understands. Yeah. To get that tiger back and get my woman back, I got to get on my knees. I love it. Me too. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Jana McGregor, author of Rules for Engaging the Earl. So here's the setup for this, Jen. It's pretty great. This series features three women, the three heroines of this series, all discover when their husband dies that he was married to all of them. Oh. And ha- basically has like secret lives with all of these women. So the series 
follows them from, like, the death of this terrible man through them having to deal with the fallout and obviously fall in love. And in this one, Constance is pregnant with this terrible man's baby, and she is stuck. She needs a husband, and she needs one now. Luckily, <laughs> she has Jonathan, the Earl of Sykeston, who is a returned war hero and her childhood best friend. We all love it already. And here's the deal. So Jonathan is, like, out of sight, and he is kind of hermiting himself away. And um, he receives an invitation. She basically sends him an invitation to his own wedding to her. And when she, when he's like, well, I guess... I guess I'll marry her because I was not going to marry anyone else. There, boom, shots fired from the cannon, and the book goes on from there. What a terrific beginning. So you can find out more about Jana McGregor at her website, janamcgregor.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at Jana McGregor. Rules for Engaging the Earl is available in print, ebook, and audiobook. And as a special treat for Faded Mates listeners, if you stay tuned after this episode, you'll get a little taste of the audiobook of Jana's Rules for Engaging the Earl. Thanks to Jana for sponsoring this week's episode. I'm going to start with what I think of as being probably the greatest, one of the greatest contemporary grovels. Now, listen. It's a book called Lady Luck by Kristen Ashley. And we talk a lot about, like, writing from the id. But I need you to understand that Kristen Ashley is taking that very seriously. She's writing <laughs> sentences from the id. She's punctuating from the id. It's real. <laughs> it's it's a lot. <laughs> like, it, I, and I say that with love. Because if you start one of these books. And <laughs> That's, it's just so accurate. So, okay. listen, when I say that, everybody, what I mean is, and you will see, it's like real stream of consciousness. Like, if Molly Bloom became, like, a person who decided to write romance novels in, you know, the 20, oh in the God. 2000s. Okay. All right. Kristen Ashley is basically Molly Bloom. <laughs> basically, she's Molly Bloom. Okay. Now, you'll see what I mean if you give it a shot. Okay. So, in this book, the character, the characters are Ty and Lexi. And Ty, um, there's other problematic things. I'm just going to skip right over. Ty has been railroaded by the local cops and ended up in jail, like wrongly accused. And he finally gets out, and he has this plan to essentially, like, kind of get his revenge. And the and this woman, it, it's all romance reasons. Lexi essentially picks him up from jail as a favor to someone else and blah, blah, blah. And for, like, romance reasons... They're going to get married because she figures out what his plan is, but she could never essentially, um, if they're married, she can't, like, give evidence against him, whatever. So he, she, though, is realizes, like, he's really happy. He doesn't have to live this way. He's going to throw his life away again on this revenge. Like, why are you doing this? And so she starts to back channel with his friends, essentially, like, how can we get him to, like, let go of his desire for revenge. And when Ty finds out about it, he throws her out of their home. He is such an ass, right? Mm -hmm. He just throws her out. And she is kind of like, I am tired. Like, she has had enough, right? So she's like, okay, she gets gone. She goes with her, like, kind of stepsister, I guess, best friend, and, like, disappears. And... Ty, of course, 
figures out that he was a dumbass. Takes him a while, and he goes after her. And in this is, like, the most amazing scene. I've reread the scene a million times. He finds her in Florida. She's, like, sitting on the beach just staring at the ocean. She's never seen the ocean before. Like, she literally just stares at it all day and is, like, trying to recover from this man. And he comes to apologize to her. And she is like, no, I don't care. Go mm-hmm. away. And he has to leave. Like, he can, she does not forgive him at that moment. She's like, I am tired of taking these risks. And I've got to tell you, I've reread the scene on the beach 800 times. Because I'm like, that's what I want. Like, she's like, it doesn't matter. I don't believe you. I don't believe you've changed. You mm-hmm. were so cruel to me. I don't, I don't want it. And it is not until a friend intervenes in a very dramatic and kind of fucked up way that they get back together. I love it. It's amazing. I love it. I think that leads into something that I really started thinking about as being like something that I really love. Um, I want to con. I want to sort of caveat almost all of my recommendations for this um, episode as they are almost all very old, and so I haven't reread all of them this week. Um, so you know, sure. Heads up, these are dark waters. So all right. I love it when, so you said the heroine doesn't believe him, right? When he. Yes. I really love it when the heroine doesn't believe that the hero cares about her slash loves her. And that is the thing that inspires the grovel. Ooh. And what I mean by this is like in Untamed by Elizabeth Lowell, which when I think about grovels is like. Mm, like right up there. Yeah. Like one of the biggest ones. So Untamed is a medieval, a lot of requests in our Instagram mm. from medievals. Um, it is a medieval Elizabeth Lowell's. This is part of that. There is like three of them and it's like, they're great. These are yeah. really great old, old medievals. This one is, um, the hero is a Scottish, you know, clan laird. Warrior, whatever. And basically, it's a marriage of convenience, except it's not really convenient for the heroine at all. (laughs) It's like he's... Never. He needs property. Like, there's a castle, there's property, there's land. She basically gets, like, they get married because she has no agency whatsoever. She can't decide. He's terrible to her. Like, genuinely terrible to her. They, like, you know, it's this is an old school, like, he's super alpha. Like, he's really impenetrable as a hero. She is, like, a decent, like, lovely person. But they are at each other the whole time. And she truly does not believe that he loves her. Right? Because he just can't feel feelings. Um, What ends up happening is she has a you know her family or her her people like there's a there are a collection of people who she knew beforehand and they um by at the end you know and this is a very sort of common story like we see this in a lot of romance novels but this is where i think this particular story begins in historicals with this book um they like sweep her away into they kidnap her off into mm, the woods and they're oh, basically yeah. like we're going to ransom you for enough money that we will pauper your husband and then he will have to we will get the house 
like back or like the house will then have he'll have to get rid of the house in order to survive and she says well good luck with that because he's not coming after me oh i stop listen i love it it's so good right right and so he has a spy now of course because he's him he's got eyes everywhere and so this a spy overhears this comes Mm. back to him and reports. Oh, because by the way, like two chapters earlier, he's like, I saw you talking to that man. Yeah. Are you sleeping with him? Like he's a fucking asshole. Of course. Right? Like he's terrible to her. These Elizabeth Lowell heroes were So he the spy comes back and she's like, no, I came to a virgin. Like I have been faithful. What's wrong with you? The spy comes back and is like, she thinks you hate her. Like yeah. She said this and he is so enraged. He gives he's like horrified. Like, how yeah. could she ever believe that? Listen, I mean, he could have been nicer. But the point <laughs> is, in this moment, he's like, he gives a speech, Jen. Yeah. That is like the St. Crispin's Day speech. <laughs> he's like amazing. Listen, he's like, I will burn their homes. Yeah. I will slaughter their cattle. I will, like, salt their fields. If she comes back – wait, I'm going to – I marked it because it's so good. You got to read the whole thing, Sarah. I got it. I got it. I got to read it to you guys. It's so good. Hang on. Okay, so his name is Dominic. He's – they call him the Glen Druid Wolf, right? So he gives this speech. He says, if she isn't returned to us alive and laughing – Ooh. Right? Because he's like, they better not fuck with her. Yeah. Even a, not one bit. There will be such a harrowing of the North as will never be forgotten. I will hunt them down and their families one by one. I will kill them where I find them. I will burn their homes and slaughter their stock and poison their wells and tear down their stone fences and slay their game and salt their fields until nothing can live therein. And then I will leave the cursed land to the unshriven ghosts I've made. (laughs) I... Just had an orgasm. <laughs> what? Listen, I, I mean, Listen. the show's over. I need to go read it. <laughs> it's freaking great. And then the last line of this chapter is the Glen Druid Wolf had gone to war. Like, yes. and it was like, he is, he loves, he has so fucked up. Yes. That he is like, in order to prove to her that she is the most, because this is not, this is twofold, right? Yeah. It is both, they took my wife and I love her and I will punish them, which, I mean, I'm for. Sure. But then it's like, and on top of it, I'm going to show her. Right. And everybody That else. I love her so much that I will destroy a whole Yes, like I want a it. Large swath of people. Can I tell you, I have been ordering Elizabeth Lowell romances off of eBay. I was a big fan of these silhouette intimate moments. Listen, look at me. Oh, I'm all. <gasps> my oh precious. my. Oh my God, there are so many. My oh, precious. I, you know, I love those covers so. Yeah. No, this one though, a woman without lies was, like, my Elizabeth Lowell jam. That's and I feel like I, I – oh, yeah. And he 
He is based, her, his name's Hawk, her name's Angel. He thinks all women are liars because, you know, some bad woman in his past. And he is terrible to her. Yeah, She's I like mean, a. That, that was a, Elizabeth Lowell. Nobody's terrible like an Elizabeth Lowell hero. Yeah. And I'm um, fine. Listen, wait. But <laughs> when he finally gets her, yeah. gets to her, like he slaughtered like, I don't know. A lot of people from central <laughs> casting, right? So a lot of extras get, you know, mm-hmm. outed and get off here. And then he gets to her and she is like wrecked. She sees him and she's like, yeah. you're not supposed to be here. Like you're, right. you're not, you don't love me. Like why, why are you here? Why you're are you going. Here? And she, of course, is like, I love, like you could be hurt. Why are you here? Poor yeah. Meg. Her name is Meg. And he's like, and then she's like, listen, and he's like, are you hurt? And she's like, well, what do you care? Like, if whether I live or die, like, the keep is yours. Like, the everything's yours. The manor is yours. Right. And he is mm-hmm. just wrecked. And then he's just, he's like, I, and then he says, damn the keep and damn my ambition. Ah! <laughs> it's like. I'm serious. I'm going to get off this podcast and go with so this. so good. You're going to get off all right. (laughs) Okay. Listen, I also love when a man is, it's like, I want my revenge. Yeah. But that's going to put her in the crosshairs for some reason. Oh, yeah. Right? And so that's like another big one, especially in historical, right? Because the revenge historical, we should do that. We should do an episode on revenge historical. Yeah, we should. Because that's, I mean, like, I take this, I'm going after this wife to punish someone else. Potentially. Or, like. That always needs a, that's a grovel in the making. Yeah. Well, in the Prince of Broadway, though, he's like, I'm going to ruin your father. Right? That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. I mean, Prince Broadway, and he has to really grovel. He has to go horseback riding with that man and wear, like, a green suit coat. And God forbid you not wear black, Clayton Manning, or whatever your name is. Clayton. <laughs> Clayton. What's his name? Madden. Clayton Madden. Anyway. So, yeah. I mean, I really feel like historicals, you can really, like, dive into it because the stakes, yeah. again, stakes so much higher. Well, also, we did a deep dive on Millivane's A Heart of Blood and Ashes, and that oh, is another yeah. good one, where oh, at the yeah. end, like, to prove, again, to prove to her that he loves her, in fact. She yeah. does not believe that he loves her. Right. And to prove to her that he loves her, he brings her, her enemies' heads on pikes. <laughs> As it should be. Lots <laughs> of, Cressley Cole, lots of good reveling, Cressley Cole. Right? Yes. I, I do want to talk about Lathair, too. Yeah. Which is... You know, another, well, we could do a quick, a quick Lothair. Yeah, sure. Which is, so, you know, I'm on the record for Lothair not being my favorite Cressley. I think he could have groveled a little more, but it's fine. I think so too. However, we all know another good example of a, of a hero who does something that the heroine understands is very difficult, right? Yeah. Because Lothair has been buried in that, like, the forest, forest, the blood forest, right? The blood forest for like a thousand years before this. And so, like, he is kind of afraid of being underground, which is the thing that, you know, a vampire, you wouldn't expect a vampire to be afraid of underground, but they are. And this one is. And then she, of course, lives in Appalachia, and there's a, or Appalachia, I read something that I pronounce it wrong, so maybe it's Appalachia. Anyway, um, she, her family lives in Appalachia, and there's a mine collapse and Lothair has to save all these humans who he values in no, like, 
yeah. the whole growth of of Lothair's arc is like coming to realize that like a human has value. Right. And yeah. so he has to not only save her whole like family of humans who he doesn't care about, but also go underground into a mine collapse and potentially like end up getting stuck there. Right. To save them. And so like this and all of this to show Ellie that yeah, he really loves her. He loves her. Because like, it's her family, right? It's her family. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I think, like, for Rune and Josie, I thought that was, another, yeah, yeah, right? I mean, I, I that is my only request is that I wish Rune had been a, a slight more grovel. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, like, so it's interesting, like, I think I've said this before, like, The Master by Cressley Cole is, like, my favorite. And when she leaves... he almost loses her. Right. Like, he almost... This is the... This... It's so clear with me. Like, if they walk away... If they walk away... she's almost dead. She's right. almost killed because he's an idiot. Yes. And you know what? For me, I feel like the one of the reasons I really like dual point of view is because I, I want to see that suffering. <laughs> And the master, because it's heroin only, we don't see that. And, you know, she just has this, like, one line where she says, you know, it looks like he has been running, you know, like, he looks really disheveled. And I was like, okay, more. I would like more of the dishevelment. Yeah, it's, uh, like, in the player when he punches the window. Yes, right? I mean, I do think, like, that's the reason why the player is so great, because she witnesses his panic, right? Yes. And Mm -hmm. she does not witness his panic in the master. So I feel like that's why it's, like, the pinnacle of that for sure. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Adriana Herrera, author of A Caribbean Heiress in Paris. This book is a terrific new historical romance from our friend and friend of the pod, Adriana. It takes place in Paris, where Dominican heiress Luce Alana and her buddies, Las Leonas, are in Paris uh, for a variety of reasons, both <clears throat> on the up and up and perhaps on the get down. <laughs> and uh, Luce is there to sell rum from her family's rum distillery, and she meets up with James Evanston Sinclair, a Scottish earl. Who happens to have a whiskey distillery? Listen. It's perfect. This is what it's I want. made in heaven. Oh. This book has marriage of convenience, road trip, revenge, insta-love, basically everything you would ever want in historical. And, like, the <laughs> hottest scene on the Eiffel Tower you will ever read. So go get it right now. The Eiffel now. Tower's done, um, everybody. Listen. Somebody did it already. <laughs> exactly. This is Adriana's first full-length foray into historicals, and she's just out here putting all of us to shame. She is proving that she can do it all, and so can her hero. (laughs) I I love it. Um, Okay, (laughs) you can find Adriana at her website, adrianaherreraromance.com, or on Instagram at ladriana underscore Herrera. A Caribbean heiress in Paris is available this week wherever books are sold, and you're going to love it. Thanks to Adriana for sponsoring the episode. One of my favorite grovels is in a book called Where You Least Expect by Kay Blue. And in this book, Joe is like a retired Navy SEAL. And he moves in next door in this town to this woman named Verna. And Verna is like, you know, she's not the prettiest. She's not the thinnest. She's, you know what I mean? Like she struggles really with like how she looks and how people perceive her, Mm -hmm. but she's also like, I'm a good person. Right. And 
they um she thinks he is like this raging asshole but she also like loves to like push his buttons right mm-hmm. like they have this kind of adversarial like neighbor thing that of course like we instantaneously realize is sexual tension and so they have this um they have this affair and he is really i think grappling with like letting go of like the seals and the like the military and like sort of that part of his life and he just doesn't really he loves being with Verna but he like kind of can't admit that this means that he's like moved on from like the babes or whatever right of like kind of what his life was like before so I think that's like a really interesting thing because here it is like she it's not really about her at all it's all about him but they're at a listen this is the, I mean, this is a pretty recent book in the past 10 years. I'd have to look it up. This is some real old school shit, what he does to her. I mean, I read it and I was like, I cannot fucking believe this is in like a new book because it's terrible. They end up out one night at the same bar, but he is with his like Navy SEAL buddies and she's like with her friends and mm-hmm. she walks up to say hi to him and he ignores her. Mm. And it's awful. And she realizes, like, he doesn't want to be seen with me. He's embarrassed by me. And he is just sitting there like a fucking idiot, like, just totally frozen, like, kind of this is my old world and my new world are colliding and I don't know what to do. And so she just turns and walks away and leaves. And the thing that I really loved about this scene is he shows up at her door that night. And at first she, like, doesn't let him in, and he's, like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thinking, like, we, ha- we have to talk. I have to talk to her. And so she, like, lets him in, and they have sex. And she, in her brain, is, like, in her narration, is, like, this is it. This is goodbye. I'm, I'm going to let myself have this one last night with him. So then, and, and he is such a dummy that he's, like, okay, well, luckily we didn't have to talk about it, but she must have forgiven me because here we are in bed together. And the Mm -hmm. next morning, he wakes up in bed alone, and she's sitting there, and she's like, I think it's time to end this now. And he cannot get through to her. Like, she is just closed down. Like, you got to go. And then he has to really figure out, right, like, how do I show her that that was about me and not about her? And But it's so devastating because it's that thing where even though, like, you as the reader know that, too— you really want to kick this guy's ass. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. And it, it and yet it felt so real. Like, it, it, it is honestly, like, I think it is, like, one of my favorite romances. And I read that scene all the time where, like, it just gets to the end and you were like, holy shit, Joe, what the fuck did you do? Right? It's so good. And Verna, you're just, like, good for you for sticking up for yourself. Get that yeah. dude one last time and kick him to the curb. Right? And it, it's really great in showing how I think that sense of, like, she's like, I'm going to get what I need out of this. I'm going to say my goodbyes. And yep. I don't, I'm not ever going to talk about it. I'm not going to let him further humiliate me that way. It's so good, Sarah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's great. So I'm trying to think. So, Okay. The, I want to talk about an Eloisa James novel. See, I think that this is tricky because I'm, I'm also, there are, there are several books on my list that are like, it really is the suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this, I mean.
mean, listen, I'm not going to lie yeah. to you. I like the Joe suffers. Yeah. When I, I mean, just described to you, like he is. It's the suffering. And yes. here's why, because sometimes here's where I'm at. I think that it, for this particular book, so the book is When Beauty Tamed the Beast by Eloisa James, and I believe it is her best book ever. Yeah. And um, and I and I I just think it is it is a book that like just nails every beat of a romance novel and it gives it delivers like all of the things that I we were talking about at the beginning of this episode. The um thing that I love the most, and maybe this is a, the best example of how suffering and groveling are like interconnect they're not always they're right. not always the same but sometimes they are interconnected in such a way that the suffering is the grovel yeah if that makes sense yes so here is where i'm at this hero is loosely this is her hero who is loosely based on um ha- like house like she wrote it after writing a bunch watching a bunch of house yeah, or yeah. reading a bunch of house scripts i mean he's actually ba- house is actually based on sherlock holmes who's based on a real doctor from like the 1700s so like it all you know is connected but uh he has similar to the house character he has um uh something is wrong with his leg like he's he has some sort of degenerative disease in his leg so like he uses a cane and and he is in pain, in a lot of pain, he's in chronic pain, and he is, like many people in chronic pain, uh, who suffer from chronic pain, like, he has sort of a quick, t- like, he's, he's Yeah, grumpy. he's in pain. Like, he's in pain. You've been in pain. If you were in pain all the time, you too would sometimes be grumpy. Right. So he's like a grumpy hero with a reason for grumpiness, and all, but also a genius, like a medical genius. Anyway, point is, the heroine, like, is not. She is sunshine. Like, this is a true mm-hmm. grumpy sunshine book. Um... And late in the game, he basically is an asshole and, like, kicks her out of his house. And is like, Mm. you know, I can never love you and I can never love anybody and get out of my house. And so she does, with, like, pretty much nothing, lands herself at, like, some kind of real, like, Les Miserables-style innkeeper situation. Yeah. And ends up being trapped in a chicken coop. Oh, sure. Okay. Like, as one one does. Listen, she also has something called Scarlatina, which is like a, she's sick. Like, she is, she has an illness. And she gets, like, locked in this chicken coop um, and is dying. Like, she's in there for several days. Whoa. And he has to save her. Um, and when he finds out what has happened, he doesn't for a second blame anyone but himself. Like, yeah. he's like, I kicked her out of my house, and now she is in this situation, and she is dying in a chicken coop. Like, she, he finds her. She is feverish. She is mm. – I mean, like, it is <laughs> bonkers. Like, yeah, it's it. all the things that historical romance, like, can be in a way. Like, that it's all that – all that stuff about that is fantasy about mm-hmm. about historical romance, right? So she's like dying in a chicken coop because this asshole couldn't feel feelings yeah. for her, couldn't reconcile his emotional state for her, and so he literally is craw because he can't, you know, he can't carry her and his cane, and like he mm. is rescuing her. He like suffers so much pain to rescue her, to physically rescue her from this chicken coop. But he will break himself to, like, 
love her. Yeah. To, like, prove to her finally that, like, she is all that matters. And it is great because she wakes up after a fe- Like, she dreams, like, in her fevered state, like, the rescue, but she can't possibly reconcile. Like, right, like how, right? He did that for me. And, like, how, like, the the understanding in her brain of, like, the idea, it's so unfathomable that he would crawl for her. Right. That he would walk into a chicken coop. Yeah, at right. At all, ever. How could, her. yeah. Or follow her at all. And then the idea that he has done all these things, she's just so keenly aware of, like, oh, this is. Yeah, this is. He loves, like, he loves me. He right. loves me and, like, he realizes it and so do I now. It's great. If you've mm-hmm. never read an Eloisa James novel, this is the one. Yeah. I think there's, like, two more, like, and Day of the Duchess, to me, falls into this, like, other kind of category, which is. I wrote that. I, I'm aware. And you know it's my favorite <laughs> grovel. Because I feel like one of the things I've said it's is, like. like the whole book, though. Yeah. Well, I'm giving, I've two more that are kind of, <laughs> like, marriage and trouble that are like that. One of them we've mm-hmm. talked about already because it's After the Billionaire's Wedding Vows by Lucy Monroe, which we put on the best of 2021 list. Right, which is that one where basically the man is like, I'm a great it. husband, and that's when he's like, Oh shit, I'm not. <laughs> right. And it's the whole book is and a it's the whole book is a grovel. A really similar book to this, but like listen, Angst Factor Five Million is called The Unwanted Wife by Natasha Anders. I was gonna put that on my list. So Yeah. Well, and I just think again, it's like basically it has kind of a similar setup to After the Billionaire's Wedding Vows, which is this woman is like kind of thought she was marrying the man of her dreams, but then as soon as they get married, it all goes wrong, and she doesn't know why. And it's like 18 months later, and she's finally like, okay, I actually don't know why he treats me like this. I don't know what happened, but I got to get out of this. And it starts off essentially with her asking for a divorce. And what he says is, get pregnant and have a baby, and then I'll let you go. And through this conversation, I love that she like essentially kind of like they unravel all of the like long chain of terrible misunderstandings and his mm-hmm. assumptions that have like got them to this place. And I will tell you, I devoured this book when mm-hmm. I first read it, which was not, it was pretty, it's, it's an old, it's a book that's a couple years old, but I read it in the past year and was just yeah. like, Put it in my veins. I want. I love a book that has a misunderstanding that leads to this kind of. Yeah, because. And that's, I'll do that next. But Yeah, you- right? Because I think, and so I guess I would just say, like, that to me, like, under the, you know, after the billionaire's wedding vows, all these old Elizabeth Lowell's, like, a woman without lies, mm. is basically like, mm. I have a schema for how I think the world works, this man. And so I apply those rules to everyone I meet, especially women. And then all of a sudden, something makes me realize I misread the whole situation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like groveling born of, I actually am wrong, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? The way I see the world is wrong. My understanding of how things really work is wrong. And and I, like, yeah, it's fucking amazing. So yeah, to me, those, like, the marriage and trouble that's that is that kind not just like we've drifted away from each other marriage and trouble but like we are miserable and unhappy together and we gotta get apart from each other Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i like that i like that a lot um 
So I have a grand gesture that is also sort of like that, like a sort of, mm-hmm. mm, which one do I want to do next? I want to do, we've talked about this book before because we've talked about so many of Kleypas' books before, but yeah. I think, again, the magic mm-hmm. might be her best grovel, which is a lot to say. Like, that's <laughs> right. a lot because she has done a lot of really great grovels. Um, but the reason why is because, again, the magic um, the hero and heroine, so she, it's cl- cross-class. Yeah. Um, he is a servant, a young servant in her household, and she is a young lady in the household. Mm-hmm. And they are in love, very, very in love. And um, at the very beginning of the, and the way Lisa writes, she gives them like, she gives them like a quarter of the book in childhood. Like there's yeah, a, right. it is a pretty long, young, yeah. it may not be a quarter, but it's like a stretch of time in childhood where we see them in love. And obviously like the history, the story could have been just like a cross class thing. Like how are they going to sort this out? Um, but instead there's a terrible kitchen fire and the heroine yeah. is tragically scarred to the point of having to use a cane, like, again, chronic pain, right? Um, And he, but when she is scarred in this kitchen fire, he is, she is, like, he is cast out. Like, he is told she does not love him. She never wants to see him again, and he should just leave. And so he does. He leaves. He goes to America, and he makes his fortune, and he comes back bent on Revenge. Revenge because he believes that she toyed with him. He does right. not know right. about this fire. Like the the fire is not is is not clear to him. And so he comes back and he is terrible to her. Yeah. The way he treats her is just terrible. And when he finally discovers what happened, like that she was harmed in this terrible way and, mm-hmm. like, had to heal for, you know, months and months and years and years, has suffered or, like, has struggled for years and never, ever told him the truth. He never heard the truth. He is so broken. Yes. Like, unbearably broken. And there is – the grovel is actually, like, a sex scene. Like, there's – he – because she, of course, like, refuses. She, they've had sex before, but she refuses to show him, like, like she refuses her, to right. show him her body. And the grovel is, like, an absolute worshipping mm-hmm. sex scene. And it is gorgeous. And I just want to say, the foil, the secondary love story in that book, and we've talked about this before, too, that, like, I think it's the best secondary love story in romance, but is also a similar... It's a similar series. It's a similar thing where, but in that case, we don't see the whole story come to fruition because um, that's a short. The the novella there is with her sister and his friend who is an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and realizes over the course of their like short relationship where they are falling for each other that he cannot be the man she needs him to be when he is essentially, like, yeah. drinking. And he understands he has to get clean. Right. And it 
ends at the end of the book with him saying to her, I'm leaving you, but I will be back. Yeah. And his grovel is sort of this moment of clarity of like, I am not good enough for you. Like, Mm -hmm. which is great, right? That scratches my Mm -hmm. itch a thousand percent. But instead of like, there's no way to sort of patly resolve alcoholism on the page. No. Especially in a secondary romance, especially at the end, like when it's all resolving. Like you can't do it in the last 10% of a book. And so what he does is he basically like, he too grovels in a really interesting way where he's like, you are perfect. You're perfect. You're so perfect that I am too broken for you, but I am going to go fix it. Yeah. And I will come back. I'll come back when I'm ready. Yeah. And he does. Like, he will. Right. I mean, he. we don't see it, but you're so certain. Right, you in know. In fact, it might, be in, it might be in the epilogue. I think it's I in the know, epilogue like, that we know that, yeah, we know that it works out. But, like, of course he's coming. Like, it's Kleypas. Of course he's coming back. And so there's this, like, both, there are two really beautiful grovels in that book, and they happen in very different ways. Yeah. I know that you wrote Day of the Duchess, but I would like to talk about it for a minute because I think it's probably one of my favorites. It's a book-long grovel. But one of the things that I think is really – that it does really well, you just have to let me praise you, is she's not present for most of his groveling. It's more like penance, right? Like he is really like, I have done these things that are wrong to her, to myself, to our marriage – And even if she never comes back, I have to make these things right. And I think that that's, like, one of the complaints that people have about groveling is, like, well, how do you know that it's for real, right? How do we know that it's not just this, like, one-time thing? And I think that, like, if you have that problem, then you would love Day of the Duchess because he is really, like, I – yes, I my goal is to find her, but it really is also to just, like, be better, And I think that that's what the groveling, like, stands for is a desire to just be better for your partner, right? Like, and look, I understand, like, not everyone loves a grovel, not everyone needs a grovel, not everyone wants men to suffer. Like, I I understand all those things, right? And that's fine. But I think, for me, at its core, like, what these are about is someone saying, like, I love you enough to want to be different. Mm-hmm. You are not asking me to change. I am changing because I know that otherwise there's no way we can be together. Mm-hmm. And that to me is really powerful and kind of like, you know, the model of like relationships I have and still have, right? Is like, it's not just my way or the highway, right? Groveling is about saying like, okay, we have to make this new path. And that means to get on that path, I have to be someone different. I think that's really true. And I think that the other thing that grovels do it's really interesting is often they are proof they are the result of heroin's agency right they're a result yes. of heroin saying like i deserve better yeah and galen foley's the duke is the last one that i want to talk about mm. i don't know there are probably others that i want to talk about but for now the, it, let's say it's the first last one i want to talk about <laughs> um, so this one is a courtesan mm-hmm. duke romance um she is his mistress, and they are they have a full fledged affair with the understanding that he is going to marry another person. Like he is, he betrothes he is he gets betrothed over the course of the book. I I think um, he's definitely betrothed at the end. I don't know if when it happens. And she realizes like 
I deserve better. Like, I deserve better than a miss being a mistress. And he gives her, like, at one point, like, at the end, there's this sort of, like, hiccuping grand gesture where he, like, gives her what's called a carte blanche, which is, like, essentially she can deliver to any business and say, like, the Duke of, I think his name is Hawksmore, that, like, that Hawk will pay for her bills forever. Yeah. Right? Like, so essentially, like, the mistress is supposed to say, you know, like, Okay, well, this really, this is setting me up forever. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'll be able to go to the Modiste forever, whether or not I'm his mistress. Um, and it's, like, his first grand gesture, and he's like, look, I care so much about you that I'm planning to have you forever or at least keep you forever. Like, this is this is the most forever I can give you because I'm, en- I'm engaged. Right. This, I'm betrothed to this other person. Sure. And, of course, that's tricky. This is one of those things in, that only works in historicals because in historicals, the betrothal, breaking the betrothal will ruin the other girl. Right. Right. So, like, if you're a decent man, you can't break a betrothal. Of course Because not. the person you are betrothed to, even if you've never touched her or, like, even looked at her sideways, is ruined forever. <laughs> Historical, everything is terrible. Anyway, the point is that in this case, so he's basically like, look, I can't b- break this betrothal because I have this like, I have to be noble to this girl. But, like, I can promise you it's you forever. And she's like, fuck off. Like, yeah, right. I don't want your money. I don't want this promise. Like, I deserve more than this. Yeah. I deserve to be married to somebody right. who loves me or who cares about me. Like, I deserve to be able right. to walk in public without being, like, shame for being in a relationship with a married man. And so she, like, wipe she brushes him off. And this is the book. I don't know if you've ever been, Are you a Galen Foley fan? Were you? Were I you for fan? sure was a Galen Foley fan, but yeah. I don't have a lot of memories of them. Like, but I know I Do read a bunch of her books back in the day. Yeah. Where the Duke rides a horse into a theater as a grand gesture. Because uh-huh. it's this one. So he's like, finally, he like sorts it all out. Like he figures out how to break his engagement. There's the girl is, you know, very luckily in love with someone else. He sorts it all out. And then he's like, I got to do something to prove to the whole world. This is where I love a grand gesture because in this case, Duke saying, I'm going to love her out loud in public. Everyone will know that I am the Duke and she is who she is and I love her and she is my choice. So he gets on a white horse. Amazing. And rides the horse into a theater where Edmund Keene is performing, because, of course. Obviously. And um, proposes to her. Like, he looks up into the box. He's holding a rose. And he proposes to her in the box. And she's like, this is insane. This is a terrible... You are grand gesturing at me. And I don't like it. And he's like, if we are going to be a scandal, let's make, let's make it a good one. That's awesome. And yeah, I love it. for it. it. So that is a that is an example of a book that really works for me as a grand gesture book. Yeah. They don't all. They don't all. Does. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, for example, like, I think we've talked about Playing It Cool by Amy Andrews, where it, like, has, like, a grovel where he's essentially, like, it's great. His friend is basically, like, he's, like, I'm just so, oh, all the time. And, and his friend's, like, and that's because. And he's, like, she's just driving me crazy. And he's, like, and that's because. And he's finally, like, because I love her. Right? And yeah. I... Uh, and I feel like, but yeah, a lot of these books are the 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 reason I like them 
is yes, like he's suffering, but I also really like this woman being like, I deserve more. I deserve more. Yeah. Heaven, Texas, I mention every time, mm-hmm. right? Where she's like, peace out. He has to break mm-hmm. out of jail and steal a police car to get to her. Yep. Nikki Sloan's The Doctor is another one that I really love. So that's an it's an age gap romance. He's her ex-boyfriend's dad and also a surgeon. Mm. And at the end, um, and they have this like hot, like it's hot. Yeah. very hot relationship. But at the end, she has appendicitis. And she's rushed to the hospital, and he is the surgeon on duty. And he walked, they've broken up because, yeah. you know, his son and like, you know, whatever. And she, he comes, walks into the room to like look at her, and he doesn't realize that it's her. And he, she needs surgery right now. Yeah. She has appendicitis. And she looks at him and she says, No, I don't want it to be you. I don't want to have your scar on me forever. And it. <sighs> Yes. Breaks him. So good. And then he, like, has to show up at her house and, like, yeah. you know, ver- like, then he has, it's not like a, a, you know, extravagant grovel, but it's like a verbal grovel. Like, he yeah. has to say he's Well, that's sorry. it. I feel like a lot of these are just, like, saying I'm sorry it's and like saying I love dis- you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's that. Did you ever watch that movie, The American President? Again, oh, caveat. Love Aaron, that movie. Aaron Sorkin, yes. right? Yes. Like, when she's like, "You're, I'm disappointed in you. Yeah. Like, right. you lost my vote. Yes. Right? Right. And it feels like. Let me salt those fields. Get it back. Yeah. Like, I. <laughs> right. I, I, if you are, disapp- if they are disappointing the heroine. Yeah. They have to fix their shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to see it on page. Yes. And I want it to hurt. Yes. Same. That's all. That's all I'm asking. (laughs) Is that too much to ask? (laughs) I mean, I guess. Well, and that's, I mean, I think that you and I are very similar. Like, right? Like, we came up reading these books where it was. You wanted to hurt. Because it hurts us too. Like, we want to hurt. Yeah. I want it to hurt. I want it to hurt. And I want it to feel like. Like, relationships are hard. Mm -hmm. I want it to feel like it's hard. (sighs) So good. I want it to feel... You know what it is, Jen? I want it to feel harder than real-life relationships are. Yeah. And I think that that's the issue is, like... Yes, relationships are hard. But, like, then I want to see these people... If I'm at a, like, five... Right. I want to see 11. So you know, everybody knows I sometimes talk about my friend Ernie and he's so funny because he said the funniest thing to me in a text message once he said, so my therapist and I are talking about like, so Ernie and his husband and their little boy now. And he's like, you know, like why it's so hard for me sometimes when we fight. (laughs) And he said, so the therapist told me that like, well, every time you have feelings, you do basically whatever dumb shit you can think of to get out of feeling feelings. (laughs) And I was like, Ernie, that is every romance novel literally ever written. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, this man feels feelings. What can I do to stop? And I think the thing about the gravel is it's that moment where you realize you just have to feel it. Mm -hmm. Right? You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. You have to feel it. Like, if you love this person and you really want to be with them, you have to feel feelings. Yeah. 
And that's why I think ultimately for me, it's so powerful because it's, it's just about like letting that, letting yourself feel it. Yeah. Tell us your favorite grovels because I, and I mean like the ones that really make you feel broken. Like I want to cry. I want to feel broken. Yes. Please. (laughs) We need more. Need to feed the beast. Thanks so much to our sponsors this week, Adriana Herrera, author of A Caribbean Heiress in Paris, and Jana McGregor, author of Rules for Engaging an Earl. Both those books are available right now wherever you get your books, so you can start reading immediately. But first, stay tuned for a little taste of the audiobook of Jana's Rules for Engaging an Earl right now. Have a great week, everybody. Prologue. Portsmouth. 1805. Only one person in the entire world had the power to make Jonathan Eaton, the Earl of Sykeston, push everything aside and ride like the devil over the fields at breakneck speeds to reach her. Constance Lysander. With each gallop of the horse's hooves, his eagerness grew. Finally, he'd come upon the stately home that sat on a hill overlooking the English Channel. He slid off his horse then with a natural ease vaulted the stone wall that surrounded their meeting place. Most saw Constance as a serious-minded fifteen-year-old, but not Jonathan. If you looked long enough at her steady gaze, you could see an extraordinary world open before you. Her intelligence, spirit, and kindness never ceased to amaze him. Her insights on what mattered most in life helped keep him on a steady course. After their respective parents had died from an influenza that had swept through Portsmouth years ago, he'd discovered how much they had in common. When he told her of his hopes for his future and his ambition for life, she'd listen and offer her advice without censure. She was his best friend, and he couldn't wait to share his unexpected news with her. Jonathan removed the dust from his ride with a few well-placed slaps of his bicorn hat against his thighs, folded it under his arm, then entered her house. It was her late parents' vacant home and their secret meeting place. Constance lived next door with her widowed aunt, Mrs. Venetia Hopkins, whom everyone called Aunt V. Jonathan headed toward the conservatory. It was the room where they always met. As he was about to call her name, a muffled conversation drifted toward him. Come lie next to me. Jonathan's quick strides came to a halt. There was no mistaking it was Constance's voice. What a handsome fellow you are. Give me a kiss, she crooned. A kiss? Jonathan hurried on his way. There was only one creature to whom she'd murmur such sweet nothings. Reggie. Damnation! He'd always wanted to kiss her, but foolishly thought it might change their friendship. Now he might never have the chance. Don't, Reggie! Her tone changed from playful to warning. Reggie, no! Jonathan entered the room where there was only one piece of furniture. A sofa sat in the centre, facing the endless banks of windows that overlooked the sea. A massive animal slowly rose and peered over the sofa back, then emitted an ungodly sound. A belch. Don't move, Constance, 
Jonathan took a running leap and jumped over the sofa with the beast watching his every step. He landed on his feet and faced her nemesis. What have you done, you cretin? With deliberate ease, Constance sat up. It's too late. He ate my sandwich. She released a woeful sigh. Thank you for your valiant try. She turned her attention to the beast. Reggie, she scolded. You're a naughty pup. Her voice melted into a cooing sound, like a mother to a child. That sandwich wasn't yours. Jonathan closed the distance between them. When he reached her, he took her hands in his, then pulled her off the sofa. Without another thought, he hugged her close. She stiffened slightly, then melted into his embrace. Her body fit perfectly against his. He inhaled her clean scent. It reminded him of the wind that skipped across the sea right before a rainstorm, wild and beautiful at the same time. What's that for? she said softly. I couldn't remember the last time we hugged. Jonathan didn't want to think that it might be their last. He pulled away and looked into the deep blues of her eyes. Midnight blue, sapphire and indigo all melded into a unique colour that was hers alone. That's sweet. She playfully swatted his chest, then grabbed his hand and brought him to the sofa. Come and sit with me, but give Reggie enough room. You care for that mastiff more than me, I think. Jonathan slid his gaze up and down the gigantic animal, while the animal did the same to him, licking its chops. If I didn't know better, I'd think you were trying to make me jealous. She slid him a side-eyed glance, then smiled. Perhaps. Jonathan felt an instant sense of relief. With his leaving, Reggie offered protection and companionship for Constance, and her Aunt V. You're home early from the shipyard today. Her face grew animated. After I finished my morning studies, I helped Mr. Bridges. He's teaching me the business. Soon, I'll be the sons in Lysander and Sons Refitting Company. She waggled her eyebrows. Jonathan waggled his own. I'd say there's not much resemblance between you and sons. You think so? She waved a hand down the front of her muslin dress. I can still wear my breeches, but they don't fit as well as they did last year. He was quite aware of that fact. She was an attractive young woman. Even more so, there was a beauty to her innocence. Jonathan had seen it from the very first time he'd met her. Young men had started to notice her too. They were already vying for her attention. Every Sunday after church, Jonathan would escort Constance and Aunt V home. His chest tightened. Which of the young bucks would escort her when he was gone? I've started to wear dresses to the dockyard, she exhaled. I guess all good things must come to an end. True. He took her hand in his, and together they sat on the sofa. How are the knots coming along? She smiled sheepishly. I spent half the night working on them. I may have conquered the figure eight, but the bowling still has me for a loop. They both laughed. You'll master it, I'm certain. Still holding her hand, he clasped it tighter, 
not wanting to let her go. I have news. Her gaze flew to his, and a brilliant smile appeared. I do too. When the dog tried to nose his way between them, she patted him on the head. Lie down. Instantly, the dog obeyed. Why didn't you tell him to do that before? Jonathan asked. He wouldn't have stolen your sandwich. She bit her bottom lip as she stared at him. He doesn't listen if there's food involved. She laughed, then regarded Reggie. But I still consider him my second best friend. Who's your first? He rubbed his neck as a flush of heat crept up his cheeks. You are. He lifted his gaze to hers. The tenderness on her face held him spellbound. You're my best friend, and one of a kind, Constance Lysander. One of her dark brown locks fell forward on her face. He lifted his hand, the tremble in his fingers visible to both of them, then gently pushed it behind her ear. I'd do anything for you. She nodded once, the movement so slow that they never broke eye contact. The same for me, for whatever reason. Her gaze did strange things to him. His body felt hot, and the need to hold her again became nigh unbearable. He swallowed and studied her face. The pink of her cheeks was a tad lighter than her full lips. At first sight, some might consider her eyes too large for her heart-shaped face. Jonathan never thought that. They were perfect. Every spark of light seemed to be reflected in them. The dark waters of the sea below paled to the deep blue of her irises. Only inches separated them. He leaned forward slightly and lifted his hand again. Only, instead of brushing back a fallen lock, he brushed the back of his fingers against the supple softness of her skin. She leaned against his touch, and his breath stood suspended in his chest. Something magical was happening between them and he never wanted to forget this moment, as he would never forget her. Have you ever been kissed? she whispered, the hint of berries on her breath. No. With any other, he'd be too ashamed to admit that at seventeen he'd never experienced such a simple thing. Yet with her there were no secrets. You? She shook her head. At the answer, he leaned closer, his lips a mere inch from hers. Suddenly, an absurd sound erupted, as if the earth split apart and bellowed. She drew back. Isn't he lovable? He's snoring. Adorable, Jonathan groused. With a laugh, she put her hand over his and squeezed. Tell me your news. You first, he said quietly hoping to recapture the magic between them. The joy on her face stopped him cold. Her expression was a rare foretaste of the beautiful woman she'd become. He blinked slowly. He wouldn't be there to see her grow into such a person. Telling her his plans was becoming harder by the minute. I'm attending my first country assembly next month. It's my official introduction into Portsmouth society. I have a new dress for the occasion. I'm saving the first and last dance for you. He did his utmost to keep the smile on his face, but his heart hiccupped 
that he would miss such an important event in her life. He was leaving on the morrow. Constance sat on the edge of the sofa facing him. My dress is white silk, trimmed in dark blue ribbons, with matching ones for my hair. Aunt V thinks we should braid blue and white flowers into my hair ribbons. Jonathan's handsome face had frozen in a half-smile. What's wrong? She tilted her head. Then her eyes widened. Don't tell me you're bored. She released their hands before gently pushing him in the chest. I always listen to your stories. You could do the same for me. He took her hands again and pulled her closer. You will always keep me enthralled. It's... I'm a little dejected that I won't be there to see you. I can't imagine that you'll not be there. It's the biggest social event of the year, outside of Lysander and Son's annual party. A profound cloud of bewilderment settled around her. Why won't you come? Because that's my news. I'm leaving for London on the morrow. For how long? The disappointment he wouldn't be there for her first dance stung, but she'd always considered herself an optimist. If you're not there for the assembly, then we can dance at my company's party. The shake of his head stopped her from finishing. Tell me, she whispered. He looked to the sea for a moment. I'll be gone for years. His resigned gaze locked with hers. I may never come back. What? She didn't hide the hint of hysteria in her voice. Some men from the war secretary's office came to see me today. Seems they discovered I speak French, Spanish and German fluently, and have a keen ability to shoot. Said I'm precisely the man they're looking for. They've asked if I'd be interested in a special assignment. It's quite the honour. As soon as my sister marries, I'll be stationed with the British Army on the continent wherever they need me. No, Jonathan. She shook her head, as if she had the last word in denial. Did your guardian agree to this? Yes. My father had discussed it with him before he passed. He'd want me to do this if he were alive today. Emotion flared in his dark, chocolate-coloured eyes. I thought you'd be happy for me. Why couldn't he be the best farmer in all of England, instead of the best marksman the country had ever seen? How could I be happy, with you being sent into danger? She sucked in a breath, after having the proverbial wind knocked out of her. He gently tilted her chin, until they could see into each other's eyes. Besides, Mr. North, you're the only one I've told that I'll be on a special assignment. It has to remain secret. He cupped her cheek with his palm. You can't save a dance for me. His eyes clouded with some emotion she'd never seen on him. You can't wait for me either. Why not? She asked softly. Because it wouldn't be fair to you if something happened to me. For instance? As soon as she uttered the words, she understood his meaning. You mean if you're killed? No, I... Beg of you, do not go. She closed her eyes at the horror of what he was saying. I won't allow you to go and die over there. Whatever they want you to do is not worth giving up your life. I always thought... For the love of heaven, what was she saying? 
They'd never discussed their future together, but ever since she'd known him, she thought they'd somehow, some way, be a part of each other's lives. You mean the world to me. Jonathan pulled her into his arms, and she drank in the familiar evergreen scent. Chest to chest, their hearts beat in rhythm. I'll be helping our country. He pulled away and looked into her eyes. I've always thought that we'd build something together, but sometimes life has other plans. Listen, I'll do my best to come home, but I can't. His voice broke with emotion. I won't ask you to wait for me. The pounding of her heart urged her to defy him. You can't tell me what to do. I will wait for you. Tears were streaming down her face as she angrily wiped them away. I hate those men who came to see you. They have no right to take you away from Portsmouth and me. I don't want you pining away for me. I want you happy. He brought her hand to his heart and held it there. If you care for me, you'll promise me this. His heart's steady beat encouraged her to look at him, but she held her ground. Then the kind and handsome fiend threw down the gauntlet. I need you to support my decision. She drew her hand away, then wiped her remaining tears. She nodded, but they both knew that her heart wasn't in the gesture. He reached into his inner coat pocket and pulled out a piece of paper. I have some suggestions of what to look for in a man. He has to earn the right to court you. She wrinkled her nose, much like when she smelled something foul, which was appropriate. The idea that she'd even consider anyone besides him was putrid. Don't look at me like that. He stood holding a piece of fool's cap in his hands. She immediately felt the loss of not having him near, and for an instant she wanted to pull him back. Their moments together dwindled by the second. You should settle for nothing less than a man who loves you for who you are. He shouldn't try to change you. He peeked over the paper. He should love who he becomes when he's with you. All right, she said softly. Is that all? Hardly. I have an entire list. He took a step closer. He should revel in your accomplishments. With every word, his deep voice laid claim to her heart. His heart should be revealed to you through his kindness and his care. He should love you with every part of his being. He should never, ever say a harsh word or glare at you in anger. And finally, Jonathan lifted his eyes to hers. He should worship all the bountiful gifts you possess that are uniquely yours. Only that man is worthy of you, Constance Lysander. Though only several feet separated them, it felt like two miles. Please. In seconds, he stood before her, his eyes red with unshed tears. He pressed his list into her hand. Keep this as a reminder of me, and what I want for you. She nodded. I promise to save a dance for you, at every event I attend. Her voice grew softer, until it became a whisper, a vow that she'd keep until her dying day. Whether it's next week, next year, 
or the next decade. I'll save one for you, whether you're there or not. She cupped his cheeks with her hands. But I beg of you, come back to me. She searched his face, and the tenderness threatened to steal her breath. How could she let him go? Without another word shared between them, she pressed her lips to his. Her breath caught at the softness of his lips against hers. For a moment they didn't move, as this newness between them unfurled, then wrapped them together in its embrace. With a soulful sigh, he pulled her tighter, never letting his mouth leave hers. It wasn't simply a kiss, but a sweet, soulful conversation about the past they'd shared and the future that had been robbed from them. When they broke, he traced his thumb across her lips, the look of awe clear on his face. I'll cherish you forever. He reached for his satchel, then pulled out a book. For you. She took the book and reverently opened it. Her gaze flew to his. It's an illustrated copy of Nautical Knots. He clasped his hands behind his back as he rocked back on his heels. I thought it might be easier to learn the knots if you had a manual of sorts. He bent close and lowered his voice. I don't want you staying up for nights on end trying to create them from memory. It's perfect. Thank you. She turned to the front page where he'd inscribed it. To my best friend, Constance Lysander, may our lives always be entwined, no matter the time or distance that separates us. Oh, Jonathan, she murmured. It was all she could manage as her heart tumbled in a freefall. She wanted to pull him to her and never let go. Without hesitating, she rushed to her basket and pulled out her journal. I want you to take this. A line formed between his brows. But it's your book of essays. You always carry that with you. I can always start another. I've written about Portsmouth, the sea and our neighbours. It'll be as if you have a little part of home when you... Her words trailed to nothing as she tamped down the swell of emotion. With their gazes locked, he cupped her cheek. More important, I'll have a part of you with me, forever. The bell from the village tolled, reminding them both that evening would soon be upon them. I must go, he whispered, before pressing his lips to hers again in a brief kiss. Jonathan! His name on her lips left her breathless. Come back to me. He smiled with a wistfulness she'd never seen before. He reached for Reggie and patted his head. Take care of our girl, Reginald. Once more, he pressed his lips to hers. Then he was gone. Gone from the room, gone from her life. She forced herself to run after him. By the time she reached the drive, he was already galloping across the fields. He turned back once. When Jonathan saw her, he bestowed that heart-swelling, familiar, confident smile and waved his hat in the air as a goodbye. She lifted her hand in answer. The image of him, assured and happy, was permanently etched in her mind. Then and there she made a vow. If God would bring him home, 
she would keep Jonathan's silly rules and do her level best to follow them. The simple truth was that she'd never meet a man who would compare to Jonathan. He already ruled her heart. Chapter One London, Ten Years Later the coach lumbered so slowly that pedestrians were travelling faster than Jonathan's carriage. Once again, he pulled his timepiece from his waistcoat. Time was of the essence, and he was wasting it. Hell, at this speed, even he could outrun his coach. After a few minutes, they started to move faster through the streets. My lord, Thomas Winstead, his persistent estate manager, demanded his attention again. Without warning, the carriage tilted, knocking Jonathan against the side panel. A ragged pain tore through his leg at the sudden jarring from hitting a rut. He sucked in a breath, desperate to keep from crying out. Damnation, he muttered. Lord Sykeston? With his brow creasing into neat lines, Thaddeus North, his butler, leaned forward. I'm fine. Jonathan let out the breath he'd been holding. Your mind is elsewhere. North's lips turned downward. It's perfectly understandable. The sooner we arrive, the sooner it'll be over, Jonathan grunted in response. He didn't acknowledge or deny the butler's comments. As I was saying, I've climbed every tenant's roof, Thomas continued. Two hundred and thirteen pounds for roofing supplies and labour should cover it. Jonathan stared at his estate manager. Only a couple of years older than Jonathan, Thomas was the perfect specimen of a man at his best. Jonathan subdued the urge to curl his lip at the thought. There was a time he had relished climbing the ladders, with Thomas by his side, and inspecting his tenant's roofs. Now he couldn't look at a ladder without grimacing. Jonathan couldn't deny that Thomas was a godsend. He completed the tasks that Jonathan could no longer perform. Strong and swift, Thomas had earned the promotion to estate manager. Fine, he answered. I'll prepare the funds when I return to Portsmouth. Start work when it's convenient for the tenants and you. Perhaps you'd like to visit when Thomas starts the repairs, North prodded gently. It was the same litany Jonathan had heard repeatedly since he'd returned home, North goading him to see his tenants encouraging him to call on his neighbours. It was a waste of time. I'm certain they'd welcome your interest. North's tone sounded similar to a nursemaid coaxing her charge to take his medicine. Jonathan carefully swung his gaze to his butler. I show my interest by paying for whatever repairs are needed. I offer fair rents and don't gouge them at the end of the harvest season. My share of the bounty is quite minimal compared with others. That's how I show my interest. Thomas's Adam's apple wobbled at his curt tone. Years ago, Jonathan had found immense pleasure working on the betterment of his estates. Now he was thankful Thomas relished the estate work. It gave Jonathan more time for designing the perfect pistol cartridge and his plan for a training school for army marksmen. Too many of them didn't have the proper training when they were dropped into battle. Even his former commanding officer, the Marquis of Falloden, thought it an excellent idea when Jonathan had presented it to him last month. 
The carriage pulled to a stop in front of a modest townhouse in Mayfair. We are here, North announced with a hint of excitement in his voice. Finally, Jonathan mumbled. Let's hope I'm not too late. A footman opened the door and Jonathan carefully made his way down the steps while holding to the handle inside the carriage. Once on the ground, he took his cane from North, then patted the pocket inside his blue broadcloth morning coat, the crinkle of paper reassuring. A special license was a rare and expensive investment, but this moment called for the extraordinary. Sometimes, for the greater good, a man had to venture into the world and claim his wife. Jonathan doubted if today's events could be considered good for anybody, especially him. Being saddled with a wife would upset his routine, but a promise was a promise. Though he'd left his full-time position in the army years ago, he was still a man of habit, and his habit didn't include entertaining a wife. A sensible, more balanced man might have turned on his heel and never looked back. Since Jonathan's right leg had been completely mangled by two sniper's bullets, he'd been anything but balanced, in more ways than one. Jonathan adjusted his beaver hat with a tug. Good luck, my lord, North called from the coach. Without acknowledging the kind words of his butler, he made his way to the townhouse door. What was he even doing here? He smoothed a hand down his waistcoat. Honestly, he wanted to see her. But if she gave him one pitiful look, he would turn on his one good foot and leave, marriage or no marriage. It made little difference that she had asked for his hand in marriage. With his fist, he knocked on the door. When no one answered, Jonathan repeated his movement but this time a little more forcefully. Come in, a woman called out, her voice muffled behind the wooden panel. He entered the modest but elegantly decorated townhouse, not far from the Duke of Randford's Mayfair home. Christian Varick, the Duke of Randford, was a friend. One might even say his best friend, which meant Jonathan should have made the effort to call on him but that would have required even more pretending on his part to be amenable to social calls and gatherings. A visit to Doctors' Commons was enough for one day. Jonathan's throat narrowed to the size of a small twig, and his grip tightened on his walking stick. It was only natural to be a little queasy. It wasn't every day that a man married, particularly when his bride-to-be was carrying a baby. To be precise, she was carrying another man's baby. But his wife-to-be had asked him to marry her before the baby was born to ensure it was legitimate. Simply put, Jonathan couldn't refuse. Because it was her. With a small tea tray in her hands, an older woman looked up and immediately her eyes widened. Lord Saxton, is that really you? Indeed, Mrs. Hopkins, Jonathan answered. Frankly, he was amazed that he sounded so amiable. Pleasure to see you once again. Still striking, with white hair and blue eyes that noticed everything, Mrs. Hopkins, Constance's Aunt V, smiled at him. Shall I escort you to her? He nodded once. Follow me. 
Her directions sounded like marching orders. I have a clergyman who will be joining me shortly, Jonathan said. Perhaps we should wait. Let's leave the vicar to his own devices, the woman said cheerfully. Constance is anxious to see you. Everything within him stilled. It had been a decade since he'd last laid eyes on Constance Lysander. Memories swept through him faster than a storm-swollen stream. He still remembered that kiss. At the touch of her lips against his, he'd found something special. She was the sweetest thing he'd ever tasted. Years ago, when he lay injured in the surgeon's tent, all he wanted to do was die. The surgeon insisted he had to lose his leg, but Jonathan had said no. He was at his breaking point with the unrelenting and excruciating pain. He couldn't bear the additional torment of an amputation. The surgeon's special recipe for laudanum made him sick and did little to provide much comfort. As he lay in the cot, praying death would steal him away from the agony so he could be at peace, Constance wouldn't let him go. Her face haunted his dreams, compelling him to fight for survival. Now, Jonathan stood in her home, ready to marry and give her his name. He'd never thought to marry, but when she'd asked if he'd wed her, he couldn't turn her away. Aunt V started up the staircase, not waiting for him. Jonathan took a step forward and exhaled. Bloody stairs! They were punishment for him and his disfigured leg. If there was any god above... He or she or they would make certain there weren't too many for him to manoeuvre. With measured steps, he carefully climbed the set of stairs, each one a torture device. By the time he reached the top, his heart pounded and sweat covered his brow. God, he always felt weak, like a newborn colt after ascending a flight. You'll find my niece in the second bedroom to the right, Aunt V turned her back on him to continue down the hallway. Madam, shouldn't you announce me? Jonathan asked. Though he didn't participate in society, he was raised a gentleman. Thus, he was acquainted with polite society's dictates that it was uncouth to barge into a lady's bedchamber unless invited. I can't, Aunt V said dismissively. I have to see about my great-niece. All sound ceased as he stood stock still. Constance had the baby? Yes, three hours ago. She named her Aurelia. In my humble opinion, the child looks like her father, Aunt V said dreamily. Jonathan smirked slightly. Hopefully, the baby didn't inherit any of her father's other traits. Indeed, the baby's father... The late Lord Merriweather Varick was the golden child of the dissolute, no-good men who lost what little morals they possessed to chase their own selfish pleasures. After practically marrying three women at the same time, Merriweather had all but ruined Constance, then disappeared, leaving a plethora of gossip in his wake. It made little difference that the baby was born before they married— Jonathan had paid the vicar enough to say that the child arrived in the world after the I-do's. Miss Aurelia Jane Varick, Aunt V sighed. 
She's an angel, and her name is perfect. Aunt V put her tea tray down on the side table in the hallway. It's a fairy tale, wouldn't you agree? How so? Jonathan asked, all the while thinking it was a tragedy. Constance discovered she was the real Lady Merriweather, and now Aurelia won't suffer the stigma of being illegitimate. For a moment, Jonathan didn't hear anything but his pulse thrashing through his body. Pardon me? She doesn't need to marry you, Aunt V smiled, but I'm sure she'll still want to hear your proposal. You'd best make it a good one. The woman continued on her way down the hall, humming a merry tune. With an awkward couple of steps, Jonathan found himself outside the designated door. He lifted his hand to knock, then lowered it slowly. The news was for the best, but a sudden melancholy that Constance didn't need to marry struck with such force that he almost dropped to his knees. It was illogical. The truth was, Constance didn't deserve someone like him. He'd make a horrible husband, let alone a ghastly father. With a resigned sigh, he knocked twice, then heard the dulcet tone of a woman saying, Come in. He stepped into the room, the same time that the earth stopped its orbit. At least that's what it felt like. My God, the years have been generously kind to her. She was breathtakingly beautiful. Her dark locks shone, and her eyes twinkled, as if the sun's rays adorned her. She was one of those rare women, a natural beauty, who didn't need any jewels or fancy gowns to be stunning. Her eyes widened. Her unique smile, the one he'd longed to behold for years, proved her delight in seeing him. He blinked, to make certain she was real. He shook his head slightly. He'd best get a hold of his emotions before he made a fool of himself. Hello, Jonathan. The softness of her voice calmed his ridiculous impulse to flee. Lady Merriweather, he said with a slight bow. It's good to see you. Another devastating smile appeared. It thrilled something deep inside him, but he dismissed it as a fond memory of his youth. How long has it been? She straightened slightly and held his stare, but the constant smoothing of the bed covers betrayed her anxiety. Ten years, give or take, he answered. Your aunt met me at the door. She told me you delivered your baby. Yes, a healthy, beautiful girl. That radiant smile appeared again. His first year back from the war, he'd spent most of his time in London handling his deceased sister's estate. By then, Constance had married Lord Merriweather, and Jonathan didn't bother to call and wish them happiness. It would have been too painful to see them together. Yet he'd heard that Constance's husband had married two other women practically at the same time as he'd married her. The lout disappeared with their diaries before he met his untimely death by drowning in a mud puddle. Your aunt said you're the rightful widow of Lord Merriweather. What happened to the other two wives? She let out a sigh. I just found out the truth about my marriage. Randford sent a letter informing you. 
Didn't you receive it? she asked. No. Constance glanced downward. Then she drew her gaze to his. My friend Catherine, the new Duchess of Randford, discovered her marriage to Merriweather was void because the vicar who married them had been defrocked. And my friend, Miss Blythe Howell, was the third woman he'd married. Her gaze strayed to the window. Your Lady Merriweather. He shook his head, trying to clear the muddle created by these new facts. The story was incredible. She nodded slightly. I'm his wife. I mean, widow. That changes my circumstances somewhat, doesn't it? She lightly worried her lower lip by clasping it between her teeth, the action emphasising the fullness of the tender skin. He closed his eyes at the sight. Everything within him tightened into a knot that he doubted would ever be untangled. He had to remember that her change in circumstances was the best for him. He could return to his previous existence as a recluse. That's what he was good at. Yet he'd never considered himself lonely until now. For some odd reason, he tasted a disturbing new flavour on his tongue. Bitterness.